Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Broken Banquet, a podcast about missions. We are your hosts, Will Bailey and Dr. Ashley Goad, and we are so glad that you have joined us for another conversation about the church and missions, about what healthy mission relationships can look like, and as we hear from others who have dedicated their lives in one way or another to mission work. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Will. How are you? I am good. I am good. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you. You too. How's everything going? It's good. I have a, I have a story I want to, to share with you. I think it's a funny story. I love a good story. Tell yeah, me. It, it might just be funny for me, but I'm, I'm going to tell you anyway. So a few weeks ago, I picked Isabella, our eight-year-old, up from school, and uh, we were driving to my office. And she told me, just out of the blue, that she had decided that she wasn't ever going to have a boyfriend. And she said it was because she wants to be like her aunt. She has an aunt who's in her early 20s. And, and isn't dating anyone and is just very serious about her schoolwork and about her career. And so Isabella said, "That's this is my eight-year-old telling me, I'm just going to focus on my education and my career. And I thought, wow. <laughs> and, and she got quiet for a few seconds. And then she said, she said, I don't think I'm ever going to get married either. And I thought, wow, this is, this is kind of serious. Um, <laughs> and she got quiet and she said, it just... It just seems like having a husband is exhausting. <laughs> and I looked, I looked up into the rearview mirror, and she's like staring laser beams into my eyeballs. I thought, what in the world? <laughs> I kind of like I like to think I'm a pretty low maintenance husband to her mother, but oh my gosh, what are they talking about when I'm not around? What so, is Yolanda telling uh, to Isabella? For real. So I just sat there at the stoplight and laughed until I cried and then, you know, carried on with my day. I love Isabella more and more with each passing day because I completely agree. Husbands are very high maintenance. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Maybe you're the wrong one for me to be sharing this story. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I have a funny story, too. You want to hear my funny story? Please, yes, anything after that. <laughs> well, as you know, I went to Appalachian State University, and Appalachian State played Texas A&M in football on Saturday. And for all of you listeners, I know that we're several months past this already, but let me remind you that Appalachian State did beat Texas A&M in football, and Texas A&M was ranked number six. It was the best day ever. And so the next day I decided, since I'm preaching in the contemporary worship service, that I could totally get away with wearing an Appalachian State t-shirt and a pair of jeans. And so I got to church on Sunday morning and I walk in in my jeans and a t-shirt and our senior adult pastor comes up to me and says, Ashley, I have to leave for a graveside service. Is there any way that you can cover the communion service at noon today? And I was like, well, I'm not real sure because I'm preaching in the in the contemporary service. And I don't know if I'll be able to, to get out in time, but I'll take care of it. Don't worry. So I did my morning duties as I always do. And we were down a couple of pastors that morning because a couple of, of folks were out. So I preached and then I, I finished up and I got over to the chapel and I was serving communion to our sweet ladies and, and older gentlemen who are always dressed to the nines in their Southern best and apologize to them for my casual wear. And we had a sweet little communion service. And as I was coming out of the chapel, another gentleman came up to me and said, Ashley, where is Carl? And I said, well, I know he had a, a graveside service afterwards, which is why I was doing the communion service. And he said, uh, Ashley, we can't find him. We don't know where he is. And I said, well, well, I tell you what, let me just call him and see where he is. So I, I called him. He answered on the first ring. I was like, Carl, where are you? And he said, Ashley, I told you I'm at a graveside service. And I said, well, Carl, are you actually with the family? And he said, yeah, they're, they're standing right here. I was like, so, so do you know that there's also supposed to be another service here at the church at 1215? And he said, Ashley, oh no, I totally forgot. And so there was supposed to be an inurnment service in our columbarium at 1215. 
And so the gentleman that's with me is like, Ashley, you have to come. I was like, well, do let me go get a robe or something so that I could come down, not in my t-shirt and jeans. And he says, no, 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 just come on down. There's not many people here. So I walk downstairs in my t-shirt and jeans. I go downstairs and I, I went straight up to the podium and I, and I went in with, uh, I had a, a, a worship service on my phone. So I, I pulled up the scripture and I got into the prayer and I said, and dear God, we give to you. I forgot to ask the name <laughs> of the person. I forgot to ask the name of the person that we were putting in the columbarium. So I turned to the, <laughs> I turned to the, to the man that was standing there. I said, and who are we laying to rest today? <laughs> so did you even know if it was like a male or a female? Like you, so you couldn't even say our dear brother or our dear sister, nothing. I, I didn't. I had no idea. And so thankfully they told me the name and I, oh my goodness, Will. And then we, you know, put the ashes in the columbarium and so ended my day. But oh my goodness, moral of the story I will never, ever, ever wear a t-shirt and jeans to, to, to church again, ever. Well, I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, um, if you get any hate mail or angry text messages from people who uh, weren't happy with your attire, can we please read them on uh, subsequent episodes of this podcast? Most definitely. <laughs> and the other thing is, uh, you're totally going to wear that t-shirt again next time Appalachian State beats somebody who's ranked. So, yeah. That's a good point, too. It was a great day, Will. Well, I think it's good when things like that happen and kind of keep us humble for both of us. I have an eight-year-old daughter who keeps me humble, and you have a gigantic church full of people who need you for all kinds of different things who also keep you humble. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, speaking of humble, how's that for a seg? Ooh, fancy. You're getting better at this. Uh <laughs> I sure hope so. Not long ago, you and I had the chance to talk to Nate Hutchison in New Zealand about the, the churches that they've planted there. And, and he mentioned uh, during his interview several times his wife and what an important part of the, the team, the ministry team that, that Whitney is. And so we went back to them and actually did another interview, but with Nate and Whitney together. And um, I'm just, I'm so excited that we get to share that with people today. So um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk anymore. We're going to let them do some talking. And that's not true because I do talk in the interview, but you know what I mean. Um, let's get to it. This is our interview with Nate and Whitney Hutchison in New Zealand. Hey, Whitney. Hey, Nate. It is so good to have you guys with us on The Broken Banquet. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules uh, to be a part of this. We're excited to, to have both of you uh, on this episode. We had the privilege of spending some time with Nate a few weeks ago, and, and just we're so grateful that we get to hear more from, from the Hutchisons in New Zealand. Thanks, Will. Glad to be here, man. Thank you for having us. You know, when we talked to Nate um, for the previous episode, one of the things that he mentioned when we were talking about some of the, the challenges that you guys faced as church planters in New Zealand was how helpful it was having your perspective, Whitney, as, as a partner in, you know, in life and in ministry because of the, the academic work that you did around cultural sensitivity and cultural studies. So could you share with us a little bit about your background? Sure. I, we both went to Kentucky Christian University in Grayson, Kentucky, and he was doing preaching and music, I think. And mm -hmm. I kind of initially went there planning to only be there for one year and then transfer out to a secular university and do pre-med. And so I was looking for any classes I could take at a tiny liberal arts Christian university that would actually transfer to a state university so I wouldn't have to repeat all of those credits uh, later on. So my academic advisor suggested uh, in my second semester that I take a class called Foundations of Intercultural Studies, and they got it approved because typically that's a second year class. They got it approved for me to take it as a freshman. So I took the class with Dr. George Pickens and absolutely loved it. It kind of blew my mind out of the water. I had done several mission trips in high school, as you did back in the 90s. And 
had loved those experiences and had even thought I could see myself working overseas someday and even kind of had a goal of living and working outside of the U.S. Even at that stage, I had thought if I did end up doing medicine, I would probably try to do that in some sort of missions capacity. So I took this class and absolutely loved it. I think it just spoke to a lot of aspects of my personality that I didn't, that I had never explored, you know, like people watching. I had always been, you know, a people watcher, but taking it beyond people watching to making interpretations, drawing conclusions from those observations and, and how much we can learn about people and their culture just from spending an hour in a hardware store and writing down things that you observe and then drawing conclusions from those observations. I was all like, I'm very, I'm, I'm a thinker, I'm contemplative. And so it was just like right up my alley. I loved it. And the things that we read were really helpful for me and putting a lot of my, you know, mission trip experience into context, as well as starting to open up my mind to thinking about my own context as an American a lot differently and to start to think more critically about my own cultural heritage and how people outside of America view Americans and what that means. And I just loved it. And so I ended up coming back and joining the intercultural studies program and got that degree uh, Meanwhile, Nate and I were dating and ended up... I'm very glad she came back to school. <laughs> yeah, we started dating that second year. Ended up getting married after graduation, and he had taken a worship ministry position in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I thought, wow, you can't really get much further from the mission field. This is what I thought at the time, than Indianapolis, Indiana, you know, but... Um, obviously the mission field is everywhere. And I quickly realized that when we got there, but I kind of had this moment where I had to decide, you know, do I pursue this relationship with someone who has no desire to live overseas, has a desire to be close to his family, is really relationally close with his family, doesn't want to move out of the country. Do I pursue that? Or do I pursue kind of my dream of moving overseas, maybe doing mission work in some capacity? Uh, and I chose to pursue the relationship and just said, um, one of the things we learned about in class was the important role of mobilizers. You know, how one person may go, one missionary may go overseas and impact a hundred lives. But if a mobilizer sends out 10 people and each of those people impact 100 lives, you know, that mobilizer is impacting exponentially more. And so I thought, okay, God, if, if my calling is to be a mobilizer and stay here in the States, if that's what you're asking me to do, that's what I'll do. It's not what I had pictured, but uh, I'm willing to give that to you and move to Indiana and try to apply for jobs at missions organizations because there are quite a lot of them based in Indianapolis. None of them were really hiring. So I just kind of had to take what jobs were available with a missions degree, which were not a lot in Indiana, and ended up working at the church there, which was great for learning some skills for working behind the scenes in churches, learning a lot of information about communications, all of which I ended up using later on the mission field. Then we got a call. We got an email from someone saying, hey, do you want to come plant churches in New Zealand? And I sent forward that onto Whitney. I was like, hey, where's New Zealand? And she was like, let's pray about this. And it turns out it was like the perfect combination of a, a mission field for both of us, which was unexpected. Yeah, I think one of the things that made us take, like realize this is different, this New Zealand thing is different because I had looked into other possibilities and different opportunities had come up, but it was always something for me and didn't really include Nate. And he was, you know, with his passion being worship, we kind of thought, how is, like, he was he was very willing to sacrifice and, and say, yes, we can go try that if you feel like you want to do that. But it never really felt like we were both being called to something. It was always him or me. And this New Zealand thing came up, and it was actually him being contacted about planting churches and my admissions degree was a bonus, you know? So I think we said to each other, this is different. This is something we really need to take seriously. This is something for both of us. It took us about a year to decide for sure. And off we go to New Zealand. 
That's uh, it's really interesting to think about the sort of when when you're talking about a missionary couple or a missionary family and a calling to the mission field for that to feel like the same thing for everybody involved mm-hmm. and for I think for you to as a couple to feel like this is for us not just for one of you and the other one is being supportive you know for a, a long time I know most people looked at this ministry in Costa Rica as you know, Will. Will is the missionary because Yolanda's from here. So, you know, I'm the one that left home and left family and all that kind of stuff. And she was just as fully invested in this as as I am. But it always looked to people like this was kind of my thing. And think it's one of the things that I love the most about this counseling program that we have now is that's her thing. Like I'm, I just stay out of the way. And, and I think she feels finally like the gifts that she has and, and the way that God intentionally wired her for ministry is for exactly what she's doing right now. So it took us a while to get there, but it's like we're finally, we're on the same page. And I just think it's, it's really, really neat that you guys got to kind of start out on the same page like nobody had to catch up with with the other if if i'm hearing that right although you did mention that that nate wasn't really interested in leaving like family and those connections and that kind of, or hadn't thought about that um so was that nate was that like how tough was it for you to transition from i can see myself leading worship in churches in indiana for the rest of my life to being on a tiny island on the oh, other side look, of the man, I love new things as well. That's the other part. That's the other side of this is like, I'm very adaptable. It's like, it's actually my number one um, strength in strengths finders, if you know about that test. So give me a challenge or something new. And I'm like, let's do it. So it, it took me about one week to decide I wanted to move to New Zealand. And Whitney <laughs> was more like a year later, we, we were on the same page. So it's like, let's read some books and talk to some people <laughs> and pray about it for a few months. So yeah, I could have seen myself even moving to, you know, she had an opportunity to go back to Italy and I was like, well, I can try to find a way to mm-hmm. do my thing there too. But uh, it didn't ever really feel like it was a, a thing for both of us until New Zealand. Yeah. He was always very supportive of me following that dream. Um, but it just like, it never felt right until the New Zealand thing came up and people often ask us, why New Zealand? Why did you choose New Zealand? And we always say we didn't, you know, God chose it for us. If you want to know why we're here, you're going to have to ask him because yeah. we. It was more for us than than us for New Zealand, I think. So as as you guys were going through the process early on of transitioning into life in New Zealand and starting the church, um, how Whitney, how, how do you feel like your studies where it kind of came into play? Were there things that, did you guys sit down and were like, okay, here's a list of things that we have to make sure that we don't do. <laughs> and that's, or, or I'm just, what was that kind of interaction like for you? And I know there was a team involved. It wasn't just mm-hmm. you two. So was that like, was your role in the team? Like, was everyone just staring at Whitney saying, you know, you drive, how do we do this? Or uh, like, how did that yeah. dynamic? No, work? not at all. Um, partially because we had, a Kiwi leading the team. So Hamish was born and raised in New Zealand. Um, so my thought was always, we'll defer to him if, if he's got an, a cultural reference or a read on a situation like that Trump, that's going to trump anything that I read in a book somewhere. So, and I think the thing about intercultural studies as a degree, you know, it's impossible to study every culture or every people group around the world. It's really more about learning how to move yourself into the background, become an observer, put other people's thoughts and needs and experiences before your own, you know, kind of giving you a set of tools to move in and out of other cultures, other belief systems, other languages, in a way that is the least detrimental and the most honoring to God. And that doesn't put yourself and your own culture at the center. I definitely felt like I was coming in as, as a learner, as a student to observe and to learn from others. I think the things that did help were being able to recognize some signs of culture shock, knowing the stages of that, knowing 
how that was going to play out emotionally and to be able to have a vocabulary around that, to be able to call it what it is. And it's not that I don't like being here. It's that I'm entering the second phase of culture shock, you know, and it's going to look a lot different than the first phase, things like that, that do apply pretty much everywhere. That, that from my perspective was huge, just understanding how to go through culture shock and having someone who understands what we're going to experience. Say, she would say to us, it's normal to feel this way. We had a honeymoon phase with the new culture and then all of a sudden it was like really hard. And Everything then it got, made us angry. <laughs> it got great again. And so to have Whitney kind of walking us through that was, was massive. But also I think the biggest thing for me to have Whitney on the team was to help us understand our Americanness in a different culture and how to, like she said, to kind of fade yourself into the background a little bit. And that was really hard for me because I'm not a background kind of person usually. And uh, I had to learn the hard way sometimes, but there was a lot of wisdom in, in that. And I think I've over 15 years, I've learned how to shed some of my, Amer We'd, we would often say to each other, um, your American is showing, like just calm down a little bit. <laughs> there um, was another phrase that a friend of ours <laughs> made up, which is, you need to be an American. You need to be Amer aware of how American you are right now in this scenario. You need to be more aware of your Americanness, which we is another phrase we still use quite often. Which is just good life information anyway. Like it has nothing to do with church planning or missionary work. Yeah. Like that's just a good rule to live by. Just be aware of your yeah, yeah. Americanness. I can remember after being in Costa Rica for several years, talking to another missionary that was here and, and saying to him, I wish I could just be a normal church member because I'm always will the missionary. And I don't want to always be will the missionary. I just want to be another guy sitting in the church, worshiping God and being a part of this community. And it was so hard sometimes because it felt like every conversation that I was having was with people was about, the work that we're doing. And so I could never get away from it. When there were teams here working with us, it was that all the time. And then when the teams were leaving and we're just in church, it was still that all the time. And so that was a struggle for me. And, and when we started going to the church that my family currently goes to, we actually had a conversation with the pastor and his wife before we decided to make that move and said, please do not shine a spotlight on us please don't even tell people what we do. They'll figure it out eventually, but just let us, can we just go to church for a while? Can we just go to church and that's it? And part of that's pretty selfish, but we need to go to church and just worship just like everybody else does. So when you were trying to, Nate, as hard as it was sometimes to be in the background, did you feel like people were still sort of pushing you towards the front or, or did you feel like they kind of, they could see what you were trying to do and were grateful for that and would let you? I don't think that being pushed toward the front is a, is a real problem in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. They do a great job of pushing you down to back to where you belong. It's <laughs> kind of the whole um, tall poppy cultural <laughs> phenomenon that you get in British Commonwealth countries is huge here. Uh, where if anything, they're going to cut you off at the knees and bring you down to size if you try to push yourself up to the front. So. Which, which I think I said before, as it should yeah, be. Yeah. It, it was as it should. It was be. really helpful for me in my development, just as a person, you know, just to be here and live here and yeah. um, adapt my yeah my personality to the culture. It's been really good. I love it now the way that they interact with you. So, so no, we we didn't have that issue, but um, we did want to blend in but for a while man we just didn't um because we were fresh off the boat as they say sometimes we were new to new to a new place and um sometimes you can't get around that yeah but. and i think that that's okay i don't think i don't think it's necessarily healthy either to go in and create a, a false sense of a new you because you're in a new place yeah. you know to sort of fabricate a new identity or something um i think to push too hard from that for that is going to um, have its own negative consequences down the track. But now I think we're genuinely like New Zealanders or we're Kiwis in a way because like- We call ourselves Amerikiwis. Amerikiwis, like 
uh, the Maori, uh, which are the native people of New Zealand, they talk about um, your feet being woven into the fabric of the land. And I feel like now I can say after 15 years, like I really do feel like I'm a part of New Zealand and it's a part of me. And um, that I didn't expect. And I am so grateful, you know, to call this place home now. That reminds me of there's a, a slang word that, that Costa Ricans use. It doesn't get used in the church ever, but it's, it's pretty close to just the word dude in English, like in every way you can imagine using that word as an exclamation, as a question, as a greeting, as a farewell. You can use it you know, in all those different ways, but not in the church. But I, I remember a friend here dropped me off at the airport, and you know, as I'm walking off, that's what he called me as I was walking away. Like, that's how he said goodbye to me was he used that word. And I was just like, oh, really? Really? Like, I'm in? And it, But it just felt like, you know, to feel like I'm part of the community in spite of myself, in spite of all the reasons that I'm not, if, if he considers me that kind of friend in such an informal sense, you know, um, the same way that he considers the other young guys in his neighborhood that he hangs out with friend, man, that felt so good. Um, because I think for me, I don't know if this is, if everybody deals with this, maybe this is one of those stages, but to feel almost like an imposter, I can make it look like I'm supposed to be here, but unless they think I'm supposed to be here, I'm not supposed to be here. And that to me was like an affirmation that it's okay for me to be here. You know what I mean? You're accepted. Um, do you all remember when was your first trip back to the U.S. that was a visit rather than going home? Yeah, I think for me, it was probably not our first furlough to the States, but our second, where I remember. So it would have been like we left in 2007, and I think this furlough was in 2012, where I remember coming back to New Zealand felt like coming home, and it felt like where we belonged. You know, we had that sense of belonging here, not just being here. I think that's when it was for me. Yeah. And I don't know if it was because we had two kids by that point who had been born here, or if it was just because we had been here and had started a church and had that church community where we really felt a, a pretty strong sense of belonging in that church community. I don't know if that was why, if it was because all of the earthquakes that we had been through in Christchurch had I think really endeared that city and its people to us because we had been through such a harrowing experience together. It was all harrowing. Having kids, planting a church, earthquakes. Like when you go through stuff like that, like intense stuff, like you, you tend to call that place mm -hmm. home and we still have a, a real, uh, I guess, identity in Christchurch. Yeah, in I think we think of Christchurch as mm -hmm. our hometown a, in New Zealand. We're in a different city now. We're in Auckland. Even so. though we've actually been... We've actually spent more time in Auckland, more years in Auckland than in Christchurch. I think we still have that hometown feeling of Christchurch because of what we went through there and the deep connections we made with people. And were your kids born in Christchurch? Two of them were. The yeah. boys were. Lane was born here in Auckland. Before we moved Not there. long after we arrived, about six months after we moved here. And then the boys were both born in Christchurch, yeah. So when people ask them where they're from, they'll say Christchurch, New Zealand. That's that's the question. It's that, that's funny because like Henry, if you ask him where he's from, he'll say America. <laughs> he is not from America. Technically, he was born in Christchurch and has been raised in New Zealand and has visited the U.S. maybe three or four times in his 12 years of life. But he's just like where he's at right now, feeling about it, he'll say America. And I Try not to correct him because they're each on their own journey as far as how they're working that side of their identity out in terms of nationality and culture and that sense of belonging for them. But what's your sense if Henry were to move to the States? If we moved to the States, how would he feel? Like, would he feel like he actually fits in there? Well, I can't say, um, but from what I've read about third culture kids and their experiences that they tend to not really feel like they belong anywhere. <laughs> well, that makes me think of something I learned in counseling classes, which is the people in your life, they say, you when you go into a relationship with any person, they become, they you sort of carry part of that person with you and they shape you and mold you. And I feel like places 
can do that as well because places are full of people who impact you. And I think that that's, that's part of the, the conundrum of a third culture kid is like, where do I belong? I've been to so many different, I've, I've belonged here, I've belonged there, but where do I really belong? Where is home? So if someone says, hey, you're going back home when we go to the States, it doesn't really feel right. But for our kids, maybe coming back here might not also feel like home. For me, I can say New Zealand feels like home to me now, but I don't think everyone else understands that, you know? Yeah, even in our own family, uh, Lane gets asked when she's going home, meaning to the States, when she's going to be able to visit back home, things like that. And it's really frustrating and, uh, you know, jarring for her because in her mind, this is home. She was born here. She's lived her whole life here. Why do people assume that this isn't her home? And it's, I think, because of her American accent, which she has inherited from us. And that's one of the things that we realized as well a few years ago is that no matter how long we are here, no matter how much we go through here, no matter how much we feel a sense of belonging here, as soon as we start speaking to the, to everyone else, we're going to sound like an outsider, you know, and we're going to be kind of thought of as an outsider unless they know us well, which most people are, aren't going to know. Most people that we meet aren't going to know us very well. They're always going to assume we're an outsider. And that was really hard, I think, because we had grown to love New Zealand so much and feel a real sense of belonging here that it was hard realizing that that's not really ever going to go away because our accent isn't ever going to go away. And just coming to terms with accepting that about our experience here. Our kids' accent might change or be a blend of the two, but ours won't. So how does that come into play? I'm thinking about church leadership mm. and, um, you know, obviously that's something that involves speaking and how do you, how do you deal with that? That, cause I've, I've had the same thought. I mean, no matter how long I live in Costa Rica, I will always have been born in Eastern North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And no matter how good my Spanish gets and how well I can mimic a Costa Rican Spanish accent, I'll never be from here. I'll never have been born here. You know, and I've been told by people that, yeah, you're one of us. And, but I mean, my passport says differently. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like that, that reality, has it mattered um, as far as being seen as leaders in the community, in the church community? Are there ways that it, maybe it's even helpful to kind of sometimes have sort of an outsider's perspective on things? Uh, you know, there's a lot going on in the U.S. right now that that I feel I'm so thankful I get to look at from where I am. Instead of being in the eye of the hurricane, mm. I can actually look at it from a distance, and I think it changes my perspective. First question for me, yeah, is uh, about leadership in the church. How do you deal with that as someone who sounds different? And with with us, we we plant churches, so when you start a new church uh, up front, like in the early days. It's a lot of hands-on, you know, you, you just have to do a lot of different things. And so we try to push people forward in that way. I would say, I think it's something that we've been very aware of. I've always tried not to assume that people are okay with our American influence. Um, there are a lot of American voices up front in our church. And so I think one thing I'm often pushing for is let, Hamish is not American, but he went to Bible college in the U.S., and so his accent is quite a blend of the two, American and Kiwi. And so even he doesn't, he has all of the cultural references and the history and the understanding of it and the experience, but he, I think a lot of people assume that he is American as well just because of his accent, which as painful as it is for us, it's even more painful for him. Um so I think I'm always kind of pushing for let's get some voices up there that are not American voices, not because we've intentionally brought a lot of Americans into this church plant. We haven't done that at all, but it could easily look that way to other people who are coming in for the first time. So let's make sure we have a bit of diversity in there. We know that the the people who know us love and accept us for who we are in spite of our Americanness. And so mm. I think it's just coming to terms with the fact that, you know, we all bring things into relationships and into church 
and into leadership that we have no control over. For us, one of those things is our cultural background um, that we've emigrated with. But we do have control over like the sort of resources that we use. Like if there's like a Bible study that's really American driven, uh, maybe, and there's another option, maybe we go with the other option for that reason. Or a video, a clip that we want to show. Um, during the service on Sunday morning. If we find something that's a little more Australian or British or, or Kiwi inspired, then yeah, even better. All of that, I think, raises some really important questions about leadership and authority. And Nate, you used the word tricky. And it is tricky because in a lot of cases, leadership and authority was either bestowed on someone or demanded because of where they were from. And so how do you make sure that you're in a position of leadership and authority, in this case, over a congregation in a way that's healthy and is being affirmed by the congregation, that it's not just because of your passport that you're the guy up front. It's because right now you're the best one for the job, knowing that you're also looking for the next best one for that job, right? That's the whole point. How do you teach a church as as the outsiders that we are, that that we're not standing up in front of them just because of where we're from, you know that there's, I, don't, I mean, I think there has to be a lot of trust there. There has to be a lot of humility there, and those are things that I think there hasn't always been. We talk about mission relationships and, and missionaries, you know, in in parts of the world where those things were lacking, and it didn't always go well. Yeah. Kiwis are not afraid to ask hard questions to your face, you know, um, something I, I love about them. They're, um, they'll cut straight to the point. And, um, so one thing we have been asked many times is, um, why do you think you have the answers to the problems in New Zealand? You know, why do you, why do you think, like, what do you know that we don't know that sort of thing? Um, and so we try to make it very clear that we don't think we have all the answers. We're learning alongside everyone else. Um, we don't, we're not here because we think Americans are the solution to all the problems or Americans have all the answers or that Americans have figured out how to do church planting best or even church best um, because we're just here because number one, God called us and number two, we said yes. And everything else has kind of just been playing out of that. And we're here to serve them. Um, and and that's that's the thing about, I think you have to, uh, you have to understand your context as leaders of, of any organization, but as a church leader, like where are you planting a church? And what, are, what is their reaction to leadership styles? And so in, we just understand in New Zealand, to to lead from a, a position of leverage doesn't work. I, th- I don't think that works very well anywhere, but especially here, like to say, look, I'm from a certain place or I I have this title, so you have to listen to me. Like, mm, no, you lead from a position of of influence instead. So you inf- like you you blend in and and also lead at the same time. It's possible to do that. It's possible to empower people and and hear their voices and hear their opinions. Uh, I think Hamish does this really well. He and I lead our church together. He's so good at listening to others and hearing the 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 opinion of the staff or something and and putting all that together and then suggesting a way forward. He's leading but he's doing it in a way that's humble and collaborative. Collaborative. It's a, it's a real spirit of like everyone gets a voice, and I think New Zealand does that well. And it, we have to lead that way, um, or we have no one to lead. <laughs> it sounds really refreshing to be in the midst of a community and a culture where telling the truth, and people will just tell you the truth, you know, instead of telling you what they think you want to hear. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it is really refreshing to be here, I think, where people are down to earth, honest, fair, like fairness is a high cultural value, honesty is a high cultural value. And I mean, culture is always shifting, right? It's always moving and changing. But um, 
Yeah, it is. And, it is really refreshing and a great place to raise kids. <laughs> and how relatable are those things to the gospel message? Mm. The, the the telling the truth, the the being fair and kind and honest, and I mean that's what a gift to be able to draw straight lines <laughs> from the the message that we're offering to things that are already so there and present. The flip side of that, Will, is it's because everything's so egalitarian in New Zealand and everyone's view matters. We have a very postmodern, post-Christian society where everything is true. Everything can be true if it's true for you, you know? And so, mm -hmm. so that's a, a real challenge with that sort of society because as the church, the followers of, of Jesus Christ, well, he's said some really solid truths that aren't very popular sometimes. Um, so it comes with its challenges for sure. So a big part of this podcast is talking about relationships and partnerships and healthy partnerships. What does it mean for you guys as a family unit to still have some sort of ties to these people who sent you and love you? And you know, what does that what does it mean to you as a family? It means a lot, but I think the thing that means the most is when they love our kids. One thing that we've realized over the years is all of the sacrifices that we make, our kids make as well, but they don't get to choose it. You know, we we have a bit of um, say in where we move and what we do. They have none, you know, they kind of just are along for the ride. So, you know, when we chose to move far away from family, we didn't know we were going to have kids at the time. We didn't know how, you know, what was going to happen with that. So we just made that decision based on our willingness to make that sacrifice. But by having children, we then passed down that sacrifice to them. You know, that's something they inherited from us, which isn't really fair. Mm. But is what it, it's our situation, and so, you know, they're old enough now to be aware of what they're missing out on. You know, when they're really young, they kind of are just toddling around, oblivious to it all. But they're old enough now that they realize, you know, all of our cousins are really close, and we're not. You know, we're the odd ones out. We're the ones that don't really know them that well. They all get to spend weekends or weeks with the grandparents. We don't ever get to do that. They're much more aware of what our choices have cost them. And so when when other people love on our kids, whether it's people here in our church or people overseas sending birth card, birthday cards to them and saying to them, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the sacrifices you're making. What you're doing is really great. I think that's I think that's wonderful because they are doing it as well. You know, they are they are coming along. They are helping set up the church literally and figuratively, like they're literally there helping us with setup on Sundays and pack down and they have responsibilities too. They've made sacrifices as well. I think especially when people take care of our kids, that's really meaningful to us because mm -hmm. it says we see them as well. They're not just part of a, a family unit. They're individuals who are going through this experience too. Yeah. Um, I, we definitely can our family can relate to that too. And, and something that has started, I think, to weigh more heavily on me as time goes on by is it's not just the sacrifices that our daughter is making, but it's also the sacrifices that the rest of our family, we're requiring them to make too. It's not just about the cost involved for us who have chosen to be here or for our daughter who didn't choose to be here, but is here with us, but also the cost of, of the other people who, yeah, who love her and love us. And because of the choices we've made have also been forced to sacrifice that, that kind of time. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's hard. Um, Has there been a particular moment that you have realized just how far away from family that you are? Yeah, both of our mothers were diagnosed with cancer in 2017, and we quickly um, began to realize how much we are not there for them, you know, mm -hmm. how much we are not supporting our aging parents, our siblings who, you know, have very stressful lives for one reason or another, who are 
than trying to support our aging parents and now our mothers who are sick and starting to go through chemo and doing all of that, not just like the logistical side of it, but also the emotional heartache side of carrying that and, you know, having to be the one to go over and shave your mother's head. You know, like my twin sister had to do that and wept after it. And like I was completely ignorant of the fact that it was even happening that day. You know, she had to carry that on her own yeah. because I'm here. And so I think when that happened, all of that became a lot more real in front of mine. And I just, I, you know, there's this, there's a great deal of guilt around not being able to be there for them, especially when something like an illness or an injury or a recovery or maybe a spiritual crisis or an emotional crisis or something like that comes up for them and knowing that we're, we're not, we're not the ones who are going to be there to support them through that. Someone else is going to have to do it. Whitney, what is the one thing that you wish people would ask you that they never ask mm. you? Or one thing you wish people knew about you that they don't? I think I wish people here knew how much New Zealand means to me. You know, how much we've grown to love this place and love the people here, and love the culture. You know, every culture has aspects that you love more and love less. But but I want, I guess I want people to know that we have a real heart for, heart for this place and a heart for the people who are here, hmm. and that it means so much to us, yeah, that they've, that they've welcomed us into this place and that we can, we can be here. Wow, Will. One thing that I love about all of our mission partners is it is so clear to see their heart, their heart of compassion for the people that they work with, their hearts of love for God and for the people that they work with. And I think that came out so very clear in Whitney's testimony and to her calling. Um, one of the things that I want to bring up is her idea of culture shock. I think it is so easy for us to think of, oh, well, they've gone to New Zealand. They're not having to worry about anything. They just have to go and they don't have to worry about language barriers. They're just going to fit right in seamlessly. This is still culture shock. These are things that we're not used to. And it takes on this act of humility and the way that they have to recharge, reset their minds so that they can go into the culture knowing that there are still so many things that they need to learn and how they can grow and be a part of these pe this people. So I really did appreciate her transparency uh, of feeling culture shock when she arrived in New Zealand. And a second thing that I picked up on in her interview was that Whitney said she loves it when people love her children. She mm -hmm. loves when people take care of her children. And that's one thing that we at First United Methodist Church in our global missions ministry and our local missions ministry have really focused in on that. Yes, we want to care for the missionaries, the frontline workers, but your family is just as important. We want to love your children as much as you love your children. And we want to create a family atmosphere for them as much as we do for you. So we publish their birthdays. We try to make sure they get birthday cards. If there's a little something we can put in the mail or deliver to you, that's what we'll do to make them feel special and so that they know that someone loves them, that there is a church that is praying for them and loving them. And that's what I did love about our time in Italy so much is that we had cultivated a relationship enough with your daughter, Isabella, that you trusted us to keep her for almost 24 hours. <laughs> uh, with fear and trembling, but yes. <laughs> and we loved every second of that day. Yeah, no, I mean, we've definitely been on the, the receiving end of that um, from you guys and from other partners. And, you know, we have no idea what, what we're doing to our child. Um, we don't know how over time she will experience being a missionary child. And we, we're aware that there will be some challenges that will come 
with that. But at the very least, we know that she is surrounded by people who who love her. And she knows that. And uh, to already see that in an eight-year-old and how excited she gets when she finds out that people who she knows are coming back to Costa Rica or that we are going to visit people that, that she knows and loves and, and knows that they love her. It's um, at least, I think, we're getting that part right. So when Whitney said how much it means to her when people love my children, I just thought, oh my gosh, yeah, totally. There was one more thing, actually, that I want, I want people to hear that, that Whitney talked about at the very end of our interview, um, and it has to do with language. And you've already mentioned culture shock, but just part of that transitioning process into the mission field and their experience was so different from my experience that it's why my ears kind of perked up when she started talking about this. So I'm going to play just these last few minutes of our interview and um, then we'll come back and, and talk some more about it. One of the things that has been really surprising is realizing how much of a disadvantage we were at coming over, moving from one English-speaking context to another English-speaking context. I think we thought of that as like a, a huge advantage, and in a lot of ways it was. We could start making friends straight away. We could start having those deeper conversations. You know, we could launch right into that. But over the years here, and especially watching other people come and watch them kind of go through those first few years as well, I've realized, actually, I think we're at a bit of a disadvantage. You know, if we had gone to plant a church in southern France, we had would have spent our first two years in language school. And during those first two years, you're learning the language, you're learning the nuance of the language, but you're also, through that, learning the nuance of the culture. And I think that that two-year pause that a lot of missionaries or church planters have at the beginning of their time in a new place is really beautiful and beneficial thing that they have for setting themselves up for success down the road. Hmm. And when you move into an English speaking context, there's kind of this assumption, well, you can get started straight away. You can just jump right in. You can plant your church a lot faster, a lot sooner, even if there aren't people who are putting pressure on you to do things quickly, or at least verbally there's still that assumption that there's pressure, you know, to kind of start getting results quickly, start getting some things going. Got to have stuff to put in the newsletter to send back. We can't just say we're learning, you know, about the culture. We've got to say we're doing this and that. Mm. And I think that kind of pressure, whether it's self-inflicted or externally inflicted, drives people to jump in really quickly when they don't have that language learning phase to go through. Yeah. So I think that was something that has been surprising to me that I've realized over the years, both from our own experience and from the experience of others, that I think we need to allow missionaries, church planters, no matter what their project is, allow them, even encourage them to take those first two years to just be sponges, just absorb, just be a, be a learner. Don't don't commit to anything yet. Don't, don't start priority listing yet. Just, just go in and find out what that culture has to teach you. Okay. So Ashley, can you talk about this from like the local church standpoint? I mean, what is it that you in the church as as a leader in the local church who is nurturing these kinds of partnerships, what do you expect in in that kind of a relationship? Right. So as we talked about in, I think it was our intro episode, that we really as a missions committee had to go through a time of learning ourselves. What is it that we wanted to focus in on? How did we want to support the missionaries best? How did we want to be a part of their lives? What did we expect from them? How important it was for us to understand that our mission partners need time to learn and to grow 
and to abide in the communities where they serve. Now, and now some of the partners that we've had have been there for a long time and others were just getting started out. But no matter the case, it's still important for them to have time to learn and grow and be part of the communities. It's not about the numbers, how many people are saved or how many services you've held or how many projects you've done. Those things are very important, but they are fruit of the abiding relationships that you have in the community. I think that while all of that is important, especially in those first few months that they are actually physically living in the community, there needs to be time to rest, not a time to report on how you've been spending their day, but a time to learn and observe, not a time to push, push, push and give me something, give me some kind of report or some kind of narrative so that I can give it to my church, but give yourself a time to breathe to learn and to grow, to abide and be part of that community, and then naturally learning how to serve out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And what you say and what she said really it makes me reflect on when I first got to Costa Rica and um, especially what she said about language and how what seemed like an advantage for them or what was going to be an advantage for them. Um, actually it might not have been. Um, and, and what I experienced when I moved here, you know, I, I spoke Spanish. I spoke Spanish well enough to kind of get around sort of everyday life. But I moved here two days after I graduated from seminary where for the previous three years, I had been in this very intense academic setting, having these really challenging and deep theological conversations with professors and with other students. And I definitely did not have the language skills to be able to engage in those kinds of conversations here. And I can remember being really frustrated by that early on and, and just feeling like my tongue was tied. But after listening to Whitney, I think maybe that was actually a blessing because it forced me to shut up. <laughs> it forced me to just be quiet for a while and, and learn the culture here, learn religious culture here, and, and start to pick up the, the religious and the theological vocabulary. I mean, who knows what kind of damage I might have done or what kind of confusion I might have caused. If I had just jumped right into that when I was, you know, just like Nate said, fresh off the boat. So I was, I was really thankful to hear her talk about that that way. And it just makes me rethink kind of how I retrospectively analyze what my first year or so of, of being frustrated by the conversations that I wasn't able to have with people, what that means and how actually that might have been a really, really good thing for me. And how we can continue to put that into practice as we move forward um, into the lives of our communities and acting with that spirit of humility. Uh, I think that that's ultimately part of how we make the broken banquet whole again. Yeah. Well, what a great episode here, Will. Let's pat ourselves on the back. That was a that was a great conversation with Whitney and Nate Hutchison. They are great, great people serving in Auckland, New Zealand. So let's be did a prayer you just, for them. Did you just literally pat yourself on the back? I did. Did you Good. saw it, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I, I, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. Hang on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a good pat on the back. Well, listeners, we appreciate you being with us uh, as we seek to understand how we can be part of making the broken banquet whole again. So thanks, Will. Appreciated you. Appreciated Nate and Whitney. And thanks for taking the lead on that interview. Yeah. Um, people may have noticed that you were awfully quiet during that interview, Ashley. And and it's because, unfortunately, because of a scheduling conflict, you were not able to join us that day for the interview. But I was blessed to be able to have them all to myself for a little while. And it was great. Great to talk to them again. All right. Well, we'll have a great day. Good to be with you. See you, Ashley. I will. You've been listening to The Broken Banquet, a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. 
Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table. All things are ready. Come to the feast.